You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Okay, we're going to turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. If someone has a pew Bible, if you can tell me the page number, it'd be helpful. Job 1. Anyone got it? 509. 509. Job chapter 1. I I, I wasn't asking for myself. I just have a different Bible. Sorry. Job chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face." The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they're dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised." In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery 
and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, maybe you got out of your bed this morning and you thought, I'll come to church, a bit of light relief, a bit of change from the normal routine of things, and so far we've had incest and murder, and uh, I mean, it was amazing, Genesis 19, at the end of when we, we say thanks be to God at that, and I noticed the thanks be to God was much quieter than normal. Why? It's a horrible passage, Genesis 19, and if you go and look in Ezekiel, it's even worse when he describes in some more detail what was happening there. And this story of Job, it's, it's a horrible passage in some ways. It's also a very, very, very difficult passage, really difficult. The notion of, of Satan, for example, appearing before God in heaven, really, really difficult to grasp and to understand. We are going to look at this, and I have to say, this is really, really important. This will really help you if you grasp this. Um, so please do stick with it. We're dealing with stuff that is really tough, but is real. Um, one of the problems with having an Old Testament expert in the congregation like Will Traub is that uh, after last Sunday, he did rightly correct me. I'd said Job was a unique poem, and he, Will wrote me and said, no, there's an epic of something else and an epic of something else, and there are other poems like this. So I take back what I said last Sunday. Will is correct. It's not a unique poem in the sense that there were these kind of epic poems that existed in various cultures at that time, though it is still thought that many of them probably derived from Job and that Job is the oldest. I think Job is uh, a unique poem in different ways as well, though, and here it's unique in its view that it gives us of God and the world. One of the great questions of life is just simply, why are there jaggy things? Why are the things that cause you pain? Why is there evil in the world? Where do bad things come from? We're going to look at that question in three different ways. First of all, through uh, looking at God, and secondly, looking at Satan, and thirdly, looking at Job. So, if I can… I don't know if this is working. Ramon, can you move on to the next one, please? That's the verse. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. We're going to look at God. Now, actually, to presuppose that you and I are on the same page, or that any of us know uh, really what we're talking about when we say the word God, what does that mean? How will we describe who God is? Well, there's a great uh, catechism, the shorter catechism that we use. And one of the questions in that, if we go on to the next one, please, Ramon, is this. What is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I made a mistake there. I shouldn't have put that answer up. I should have asked you first, for those of you from a Presbyterian background, to see how many of you remember. But uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to actually learn. There's a huge amount in that. When we are talking about God, we are talking about someone who is very, very different from us. We do not create God in our own image. 
He is a spirit. He is infinite, eternal, and and unchangeable. The only thing I would add to that is uh, I would include love. Now, mostly they included love in goodness, but the Bible specifically says that God is love. We are talking about a God who is almighty, a God who is everywhere, He is all-powerful, and He is all-knowing. And that then creates a problem for many, many people because they say, if there is such a God, then why is there trouble in the world? Why Why are there jaggy things? Why are there things that cause us hurt and pain? Job clearly thought that his trouble was coming from God. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. John 1, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. See, some people want to teach that there's God who's good and He creates good things, and then there's an evil God who creates bad things. But the Bible says that God created everything, and that does create enormous difficulties. Charles Darwin, for example, really struggled with the idea of some of the things that he saw in nature being created by God, which appeared to be capriciously evil or uh, cruel. Where does trouble and evil come from? Is it out with the control of God? Well, I think the answer we find in Scripture is that God permits evil, but does, he's, he's not the person who, if you like, sets up good and evil as equal and opposites. God gives permission, if you like, for evil to happen, and that's exactly what happens in this story. Satan has to come and to seek permission from God to allow that to happen. Now, in the story that's told here, the drama that's told here helps us understand it a little bit better. There's a whole range of arguments that people use philosophically. They're called theodicies, the whole notion of of God and suffering. But I think that this drama here tells us that uh, there's a much wider picture, and we look at the drama. It tells us that sometimes things happen on earth because of decisions made in heaven. It's not God sitting at a computer console pressing buttons, nor is it God and the angels throwing dice, nor is it some kind of computer sim game like SimCity. In verse 6, the picture is of a heavenly court. The angels come to present themselves before the Lord. The Canaanites believed that the gods met in council on a mountain. We sang Psalm 82, which speaks of the gods, which is normally understood as meaning the rulers, the civil authorities. But Psalm 89 verse 5 also speaks of the council of the holy ones. And there's this idea that this is going on, that there is this council discussion, if you like, this observation that is occurring. Now, as I say, it's difficult. There are difficulties in this, but let's just follow the story through. In this whole book, in this whole poem, it is, we are told over and over again that God is good. We're also told that Job is innocent, and yet these calamities come from God. 
In a very simplistic worldview, you would say bad things happen to bad people. If you're bad, you're going to be punished. Good things happen to good people. But if we went up to Nine Wells just now and went to ICU, we went to the cancer ward, and we spoke to all the people who were there. Is it just bad people, as people would understand that, who get cancer? That is not the case. You have somebody who's a really good friend, and you hear that they've got cancer, and it stuns you, and you, you, you cannot help but think, but God, how is this right? How is this fair? Job tells us God is supreme. God is in control. That's the, the, the idea here of even Satan having to present himself before God. This is not a war between two equal deities. But he was also telling us there are powers who influence events. The universe is not mechanical, but relational. There is no yes or no answer to the question of God creating evil. It's not as simple as that. It's really how the universe exists. And let me explain this in another way. I've got five different views there of how people view the universe. Now, bear with us for a minute. Okay, this is philosophy, but it's not, it's, you've all got a philosophy. And you all have one of these views. And it's not even worldview, it's universe view. And I'll, I'll just explain what they are. And I, I honestly think this is really helpful for us. The first view is this, the fatalistic view of a mechanistic God what C.S. Lewis calls a cosmic sadist, a God who does just push the buttons all the time. Someone who you have to say, well, I can't help it because God made me do it all the time. That is not the biblical view. Whatever anyone says, that is not what the Bible teaches. The second view is one that many people in our culture believe, a fatalistic view of a mechanistic universe. In other words, it's all in your genes. It's all predetermined. Everything turns out the way it's meant to turn out. It's all fate. That's just the way that it is. Number three is what a lot of people in our culture hold to as well, chaos theory, where no one is in control and everything is emptiness. Going back to the example of maybe you've been told that you are seriously ill, and, or a friend is seriously ill, and you're thinking, why is this God doing this to me? Or is this just the fates? Is it the stars? Is it, the, is it genetics? Are we all, is this just how it is? Nothing we can do about it? Or maybe, and I think this is a much more likely scenario for many people, is you just have this sense of emptiness, this sense of blankness, this sense of none of this makes any sense. I was reading um, this book by David Bentley Hart, Atheist Delusions, and it's, it's pretty heavy going, but it's brilliant. If you're in a kind of philosophy, I'd strongly recommend it. Let me read you this couple of sentences, and don't panic if, if you don't get it instantly. I had to do a triple take. In fact, this is a, my bedside reading, and I've had to give it up as my bedside reading because I have to be really awake to read this. I like bedside reading that sends me to sleep. Um, this doesn't. Modernity's highest ideal, its special understanding of personal autonomy, requires us to place our trust in an original absence underlying all of reality, a fertile void in which all things are possible, from which arises no impediment to our wills, and before which we may consequently choose to make of ourselves what we choose. Okay, all that he's saying there, I would have to read that three or four times, and, and I did that myself. All that he's saying there is this, the way that 
the modern mindset is, the way that we think in our culture, it requires us really to believe that there's nothing, that there's no God, there's no real purpose, that it's all going to end up as nothing, it began as nothing, it's going to end up as nothing, and ultimately it's nothing, and so you can do what you want. You can choose things, you make your own reality, you make your own morality, you make your own religion, you just, it's just you. That's all that there is. There's just you and what you make, and then you die, you fade, it's nothing. Everything is nothing. And that is that third view, really, of chaos theory. The fourth view is dualism, that there's a good God and a bad God, and they're basically equal. And the fifth view is the one I would argue that Job teaches, and that's the biblical view, and that underlies everything, and that is it's a relational view where in order to see light, darkness is allowed. In other words, if you say, imagine this, imagine you were to say, right, if there was a really, really good God, there would be no evil. How would you know what goodness was? If there was no darkness, how would you know what light was? If in order for us to be relational and to connect and to relate with one another and to relate with God. In other words, if we are to share in the, in the fact that God is love, then we have to know things. We have to understand things. We have to experience things. The simpler way I explain that is this. I can offer you right now, or let's say I could offer you, an opportunity for you to experience no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no broken relationships, no hurt, no sin, no sickness, no disease, would you take it? You'd say, yes, I would. Okay, if I turn you into a chair, would you take it? Because a chair doesn't feel any of those things. You could say the chair that you're sitting on has a perfect life. It's not sitting there right now going, oh, this guy's a bit heavy. I wish I'd get someone lighter next time. It's not worried about that. It's not thinking, why am I just a chair? Why can't I go out and be something else? It's not agonizing. It's not saying, what's all this about? I've just heard them read this horrible Bible story that's got incest and everything in it. The chair couldn't care less. The chair is perfectly happy. You could have that, but you wouldn't be human. Maybe in order to be human, in order to, to be relational, you need to be able to see the darkness and to know the darkness. And that is a huge part of where Job comes in. In the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, talks about health and sickness. Yea, all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. If we go on to the next slide, please. And question 28 of that says this. What does it profit us to know that God has created and by His providence still upholds all things, all things, even things that we would perceive as bad, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future may have a good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot move. The Bible tells us that nothing is out with the control of God, even the things that are evil. So go on to the second and ask about Satan, the devil. One of the angels who comes to present himself before God is Satan, or actually it's literally the Satan, Satan being the accuser. The same word is used in 1 Chronicles 21 and in Zechariah chapter 3, the only other times that these words are used in the New Testament. Satan, of course, is spoken of far more by Jesus in uh, the New Testament. What can we say about Satan? There are evil powers in the universe which are opposed to God. 
they are active. There is a devil. He is described as a fallen angel, the destroyer, the deceiver, the liar, the murderer, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, a roaring lion, a thief. And all that we need to know about Satan is this, that he is totally committed, he has a spiritual power, not equal to God, but he is a powerful spiritual being who is totally committed to the downfall of God's people. And those of you who want to just dismiss the whole idea of a devil and evil, you will find yourselves in enormous trouble. The devil is not the wee caricature of the guy with a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder telling you to do something bad. Just as there is the spiritual power of God, just as there are angels, so there are spiritual forces which are not of God, which is why, incidentally, just to say I'm into being spiritual doesn't make any sense. You can be spiritual and find yourself being influenced by the devil. I remember when I wasn't a believer, I was at school, and I remember in one of the schools near us, there was a real fashion in the 1970s for Ouija boards. And everyone thought, ah, just Ouija boards, doesn't matter. It's just a joke. Do it for a joke. Actually, as a non-believer, I stayed away from it completely. And there was one infamous incident in a, one of the local schools where they had a Ouija board uh, session and one of the kids ended up jumping out the window and almost killing themselves. People were saying, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe in the devil? Yes, I do. Do I believe there are spiritual forces? Yes, I do. Do I believe there are evil spiritual forces? Yes, I do. And what is taught in this passage tells us some of these things. He is the accuser. He comes and accuses Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? He's the wanderer, by the way. He's the one who wanders. He has no home. His home eventually will be where God places him, in hell. But he has no home. He is the one who's he's, he's the, the author of aimlessness and anxiety and alienation. He's the cynic. Chapter 1, verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replies. Of course he fears you. Of course he's religious. Look what you've given him, all these donkeys and camels and wealth and wonderful family and he's got great power. Of course he's going to worship you. Take it all away and he won't. Let me just simply say this. If you're a cynic, don't be proud of it. It's the essence of Satanism. Cynical cynicism, like naivety actually, I think is, is of the devil in that way. He's the tormentor. Um, in chapter 2, I have been roaming through the earth, verse 3, going to and fro on it. Verse uh, 9 of chapter 1, or does Job fear God for nothing. You, don't, you bless the work of His hands. Take it away from Him. Stretch out your hands. Take away everything from Him. Take away the hedge, says Satan. He's really saying goodness cannot survive in a world of real pain. That's his biggest accusation. And when Christians try and protect ourselves from the world of real pain, which is instinctive and right in one sense, but when we demand that we shouldn't feel pain, that we should never get sick, that no one we love should ever get cancer, that only bad people should suffer, and Lord, please make sure we're not the bad people, 
We are not understanding that there is a kind of cosmic battle going on, and our faith is only ultimately proved genuine when we're faced with evil. There's something that we call extrinsic, extrinsic religion. That is, in psychological terms, that is, I, I, I'm only in it for what I can get out for it. So, you come to church, you feel good, that's great. You sing a nice song, you feel good, that's great. You have a good time in church, that's great. The church provides you with what you want. Then things start going wrong. Life starts getting tough. Things don't work out so well. You're really struggling in so many different ways, and you think, oh, forget this. I don't want any part of this. I'm done. I'm out of here. Because your religion is only what you can get out of it. But intrinsic religion is what we are, what's in us, that we hurt, we, we struggle, we have difficulties. And that's what Job had. You'll notice also about Satan, he's limited. He needs divine permission. In Job chapter 38, we're told about God that he, he says to the sea, this far and no further. He also says to the devil, this far and no further. Absolutely everything is in God's hands. Chapter 2, verse 6, very well, the Lord said to Satan, he's in your hands, but only this far. You must spare his life. Satan is limited, but he's also powerful. He uses slander and lies. He uses family and friends to attack and to hurt and to wound. He's deceitful. He imitates God so that for the rest of the book, Job imagines that his attacker is God. Very important to understanding this book. Job goes asking questions for the rest of the book, saying, God, why have you done this? And it wasn't God who did it. It was the devil who did it. And Job didn't grasp that. He didn't understand it. Satan deceived. Satan comes as an angel of light. In the whole of this book, you never hear of the devil again. Never. Normally, the devil does not come in a you know, kind of big blaze. He comes subtly, sneakily. Do you know this? You can be in church on a Sunday morning. You can have a great time, worship the Lord, and you can go home and the devil comes in. The church can be prospering and growing and being blessed, and the devil comes in to disrupt things. I've seen it so many times, so many times. And sometimes you know what the temptation is, and I can guarantee you there are Christians here like this. You know what you think? You think, Lord, just give me a peaceful, quiet church where everything's okay, as it always has been. Just carry on. Don't let the devil attack us. But what you're also really saying is, don't let us grow. Don't let us change. And don't you move among us. Just leave us be. We don't want Satan to attack us. But if God is at work, Satan will be in there. He's evil. He is pure evil. We do not know. We cannot conceive of what pure evil is like. But he certainly is that. Chapter 2 and verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replies, a man will give it all he has for his own life. He's suggesting that Job only really cares about himself, and therefore to lose possessions or people is not really touching him. And so God challenges Satan. Verse 8 and verse 3. Verse 8 of chapter 1 and verse 3 of chapter 2. Here is Job. He's a righteous really does believe. And God says to Satan, I am so convinced that Job really does believe that I am going to let you attack him in a way that is cruel and wicked and vindictive and is going to absolutely overwhelm him, but he will not betray me. It's an extraordinary 
statement from the Lord, an extraordinary challenge. Let's go on to look at Job. Just do this to to close with. This battle takes place between good and evil within one man's life, or at least within the context of his life. It is experienced by a human being. It's the beginning of the week when Job would have been making sacrifices, and from north, south, east, and west, the devil incites people to attack. Sabaeans from the south, from Sheba, the queen of Sheba came from there. They take the donkey and oxen and kill the servants. The Chaldeans from the north take the camels and kill the servants. The lightning from the sky kills the sheep and the servants. The storms sweep in from the west, from the Mediterranean. The mighty wind is the desert storm from the east. And he's just hammered. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. In chapter 2 and verse 4, skin for skin, Job finds himself losing his health. He goes to the ash heap outside the city, to the rubbish dump, and he sits on the rubbish dump, and with a broken piece of pottery, he scrapes his stores. Don't scratch, don't scratch, you'll only make it worse. He takes a broken piece of pottery, and he scrapes his sores. From the rest of the book, we know that his suffering includes weight loss, fever, nightmares, sleeplessness, elephantitis, skin rotting, aching, rotten bones, depression, putrid breath, failing vision. He looks absolutely dreadful. Chapter 2 and verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their feet. He looked hellish. He looked horrendous. He's not aware of the heavenly court, which is even worse for him. We as the readers are, but he is not. God says nothing. Job cries and asks why, and the heavens are as brass. And in those circumstances, you get this absolutely extraordinary faith. Verse 21, he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He recognized that God is responsible for the whole of life. He prayed consistently every week that these things would not happen to him. They did happen. He does not blame natural events. He does not forget God's blessing. He does not close his eyes to reality. And yet he says, I will worship the Lord. In chapter 2 and verse 10, he says to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And it's accept not in the way of saying, oh, well, that's it. That's just life. He's saying, somehow, I have to believe that God is in this. It's not grin and bear it. He's saying, whatever happens to us, we must continue to love and trust God. How does he escape the horrible thought that God has done something bad, or that God hates him, or that God does not care about him, or that God is cruel, or that God does not exist? How does he escape all of that? Because he has a much higher picture of God. Satan was proved wrong, loss after loss, yet Job still worships and prays. A man may stand before God, stripped of everything that life has given him, and still lack nothing. Now, I think we are like Job in this. We are also in a great warfare, Ephesians 6. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. In every aspect of suffering, there's a bigger battle taking place. In every pain that you feel this week, in every hurt that you have in your life, in every frustration, there is a bigger battle going on. 
I'm not saying that everything is directly a consequence of the devil personally attacking you. He's not omnipresent. He can't do that with everyone. But I am saying this, that the drama of your life is being played against the backdrop of a bigger drama, a drama of the battle between good and evil in the whole world. Job has patience, and we need to learn that too. James 5 verse 11, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do you understand that? When you're told your child has got cancer, when you're told that your friend has died, when you're told that you're going to lose your job, when you're told that your relationship is breaking up, you always remember the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Lamentations 3, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Please grasp that. God does not say, I am going to hurt that person for the sake of it. He does not willingly bring it. There must be, there has to be a greater purpose. We do not see it. We do not know it. But Job sees it, and Job knows it. He is wise. He understands. In the words of Calvin, he grasps that six feet under we decay and are reduced to nothing. He recognizes that everything he has in life is from God, his family, his wealth, his good health. They're not his by right, and when God takes it has to be for a greater and better purpose. One man says this, a cross without Christ never did any good to any man. There are those of you who suffer, and you face that suffering without Christ. How can you do that? You can push it away, you can ignore it, you can drown your sorrows. You shut your eyes to it. I think most people try and do that. Take away the pain, take away the pain. It's like we're going to the doctor and we're seriously ill and we've got pain and all we're saying is take away the pain, take away the pain. Don't heal the disease. That's not what we're interested in. Take away the pain. The Christian says, no, we can face the pain. We want you to take away the pain, but we can face it. We want the disease healed. The Christian can worship in the face of suffering. Psalm 25, verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Psalm 92, verse 15, proclaiming the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in Him. The devil will come to you and he'll say, God is torturing you. God is manipulating you. God is wicked. God is evil. And you have to turn around and say, no, I do not understand why I'm hurting so much, but there is no wickedness in Him. I think the greatest story I've heard of that is a man called Horatio Stafford, who in 1873 had financial disaster from the Great Fire of Chicago. So he sent his wife and his four children aboard the SS Ville de Havre boats, uh, which then collided with the SS Lockhearn and 200 people drowned, including his four children. His wife sent him a telegram which said simply, saved alone. He caught the next available steamship and was told by the captain exactly where his daughters had drowned. And he sat down and he wrote, and this is what he wrote. 
when peace like a river <clears throat> when peace like a river attendeth my soul when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul the man who wrote that was not a stoic he was not saying that's the way it is you win some you lose some he's in deep anguish and in deep agony and in deep hurt and i think in deep confusion and in deep pain and he says you've taught me to say it's well it's well with my soul habakkuk 3:17 says this though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet i will rejoice in the lord i will be joyful in god my savior the sovereign lord is my strength he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to go on the heights if you are here and you are not a christian i can tell you you are going to face pain and suffering and you cannot deal with it you cannot cope with it you cannot stand up under the storms that will come your way you need to flee to christ as your refuge if you are a christian you need to recognize it does not guarantee you immunity from suffering but what you do have and what you will have is you will have a rock on which to stand and you will be able to rejoice in god even in the most hellish of circumstances that's what job is teaching us though the devil attack though all everything seems to go against us yet it is possible for us in the midst of that agony and in the midst of that pain to know the presence the power and the peace of god let's pray lord we we've looked at some really hard things this morning things that we want to avert our eyes from things we don't really want to think about we want to think of it the world is always being a place where the sun shines where there's plenty food where there's no illness no suffering where there are no disrupted relationships no cruelty no wars yet we do not live in that world we live in a world of sickness and sorrow and we thank you we thank you that you come you have come as emmanuel god with us to take away our captivity to take away our misery to give us one whom we can trust and rely upon lord you are the rock there is no wickedness in you at all forgive us when sometimes we give in to the temptations of the evil one to think badly of you help us oh lord instead to look with steadfast faith upon jesus christ the author the finisher and the perfecter of our faith for we ask it in your name amen Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace 
the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.